Good morning. Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. My name is Nell Newton. I'll be your worship leader this morning. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning, and we welcome all persons of all religions, ethnic and racial origins, sexual orientations, abilities, and other circumstances. Please join me in the words for lighting our chalice, in the light of truth and the warmth of love we gather to seek, to find, and to share. We come to this time and this place to rediscover the wondrous gift of free religious community, to renew our faith in the holiness, goodness, and beauty of life, to reaffirm the way of the open mind and full heart, to rekindle the flame of memory and hope, and to reclaim the vision of an earth made fair with all her people one. Now, if you would, please join me in affirming our mission statement found in your order of service or on the wall to my right. We gather in community in the ones that rose, transform lives, and do justice. Why make clothing? Why do I sew? Probably the major reason I took up sewing was fear of Alzheimer's disease. Yes, I remember both my dad and his mother before him afflicted with this crippling condition. I was more than concerned about the familial nature of Alzheimer's disease. I reviewed the medical literature to see if I could avoid or postpone the inevitable. I found no real prospective therapies. The consensus I did find appeared to be, just wait and see what happens. This was neither comforting nor acceptable. Confronted with the likelihood of possibility of Alzheimer's, I became inspired with the now famous motto of the Grey Panthers, use it or lose it. So I decided to exercise my brain as much as I could. My first exercise was to learn something completely new by learning conversational Spanish. It worked. I noticed a marked improvement in my memory for things such as phone numbers and recent events. Unfortunately, I still can't remember anybody's name. But I felt much more alert and connected. When I retired in 2005, I needed a new brain exercise to learn something completely foreign to me. I decided to take up tailoring. That involved both design and construction of men's clothing. As I embarked on my new adventure, I applied two constraints to assure me that I would have some sufficient mental challenge. Almost all of the clothing patterns must be homemade from scratch, using only body measurements. I would use no commercial patterns. 
My designs were to be unique and not like other garments one could buy commercially. <laughs> I got a sewing machine, some fabric. I watched Susan Calgie on the DIY network religiously and jumped into making garments. Not all of the garments I made could be worn in public. <laughs> And some of them I could need not even get on. I became very familiar with two new words, unsewing and re-sewing. The joy of discovering new sewing technique coupled with bold new fabrics was not only challenging but a source of joy for me. The production of garments that could actually be used by others added meaning to my life. And then I discovered audiobooks that I could listen to while I was sewing. This permitted me to investigate things like philosophy, theology, history, and of course the origins and history of Unitarian Universalism. For those of you that are retired, perhaps you've run across the daunting retirement challenge. How do I deal with being irrelevant? As a pro professional, my working career was filled with many and challenging opportunities. Most of my self-identity and meaning had been derived from my professional career. With retirement, that meaning and identity quickly faded. I consider myself fortunate to have found that tailoring filled some of that identity void. Men's fashions are typically conservative and bland, created more not to offend than to delight and enjoy. Additionally, most retail clothing is cut to fit the mythical average-sized man, but he doesn't exist. <laughs> I can make unique, satisfying, and useful clothing for myself and others. When I make garments for others, I find an opportunity to enhance my own life as well as the lives of others. And finally... Tailoring has provided an answer to the age-old philosophic conundrum, how shall I fill the time between now and the time I die? It's really the simplest stitch of all. You tie a knot in one end. And then the other end, you thread through the eye of the needle. You smooth it out. And then you pick up your fabric, and you hold it taut between your fingers, and then with the needle, you pierce the fabric, not your fingers, and pull it through taut. And then with the tip of the needle, you pick up the fabric, one, two, three, four times, and you draw it through and smooth it out. And then you have it. 
a clear, simple, running stitch. It's a paleolithic stitch. It was the first stitch that brought together two pieces of hide, two pieces of matted wool, two pieces of homespun cotton, two pieces of the finest woven silk to make something useful. Ecclesiastes tells us there is a time to rend and a time to sow. And this is a time to consider sewing. A few years back, I offered to teach a group of campfire kids how to sew some simple garments. Most of the parents agreed to come help their kids, but one girl's mom wasn't able to help. No problem. Eleven-year-old Mary was well-behaved and smart enough that I told her she'd just be fine following along with me. I told her to show up with a couple of yards of fabric, and we'd go from there. When they came to my house, instead of just dropping Mary off, the mom hung around to talk a little while. I was polite, but I turned my attention to the matter of the fabric and choosing a pattern. The fabric they had brought was a sensible, solid blue. It was the blue of the color of the overalls that my uncles used to wear when they worked on engines. Was it ugly? <laughs> and given the plain navy pants and simple white blouse that Mary was wearing, I guessed that vanity was not encouraged in their home. Oh, but that blue fabric was just too ugly to mess with. Instead, I told Mary to go dig through my stash of fabrics. That's what it's called, a stash. And she found a nice piece of calico, light blue and sprigged with tiny white flowers, and it was perfect for her skirt. Meanwhile, her mother was explaining why she would not be able to help us. You see, she explained, her mother had never taught her to sew, never wanted her to sew, because her mother wanted her to be an engineer or a scientist. She didn't want her to be limited by girls' work or tied down by domestic drudgery. I listened politely, well, quietly showing Mary how to find the fabric's grain so that the garment would hang correctly, and how to lay and pin that delicate tissue paper pattern. I listened while the mom told me that it was at her mother's insistence that she never learned to cook or sew because she presumed she would be making so much money that she would never have to do that and someone else would do that work for her. So that's why she never learned to sew and why she got a professional degree. <laughs> Finally, I'd had enough. I turned to Mary, who was carefully pinning and cutting out the pieces, and I said, you know, if you think about it, sewing is really a kind of construction based upon engineering. And it takes... A bit of trick because you're working with a flexible material and the goal is to cover a moving body. It takes some math and planning and you have to understand the properties of the material and the way that bodies move if you want to have something worth wearing. Because badly sewn clothes are really quite uncomfortable. Eventually, the mom ran out of excuses and left us in peace. 
Meanwhile, Mary learned to make a loose running stitch and then pull the thread to gather up the fabric and how to fit two differently sized pieces together and how to create a waistband tunnel that you run elastic through and how to hem the bottom up evenly. Within a couple hours, she had finished a lovely three-tiered skirt. She knew everything about that garment. There was no mystery to it, because she had sewn it herself. And when she finally slipped it onto her delicate waist, she looked down at her work and did what any young girl would do. She twirled around to see the skirt flare out and swirl about her knees. It was a magical moment. And even if she never sews another thing in her life, she understands the basics. And when she looks at something, the inside or the underside or the lining or the back, she will see how something was put together. Now, I want you to do something here for just a moment. I want you to look at the inside of your sleeve. I want you to look at the hem of your shirt or your pants. And look at the threads that are holding that fabric in place. You'll probably see an even line of stitching. Maybe there's a complex web of threads that bind the fabric together to keep it from fraying. Maybe the thread is a contrasting color. Or maybe it matches the fabric so well that you can hardly see that line of stitches on the right side of the garment. Someone's hands did that work. Everything we are wearing was sewn by a human being. Every pillowcase and sleeping bag and backpack and tent was sewn by someone. Every sofa cushion and slipcover and seat belt was guided through a sewing machine by a skilled worker. The suits the astronauts wore were assembled by expert seamstresses who had never sewn such a thing before, but they put their minds and their machines to work, and they sewed suits to protect fragile human bodies against the cold of space. You see, even in this era of astonishing technology, there is still no machine where you stuff a bale of cotton in one end and pull a pair of pants out of the other. There's not an app for that. We're still pretty much doing what our ancestors did, cutting a flat piece of cloth into pieces and sewing the pieces together to cover our shivering naked selves. Maybe your mother sewed for you when you were young. And if you came in with a tear on your sleeve or a rip in your britches, did your mom work some kind of mundane miracle of mending? Along with my 10-inch chef's knife and my pen, my sewing basket is one of my strongest, most powerful weapons against chaos. 
like many women, I sewed clothes for my children when they were young simply because they were so beautiful and store-bought clothing was so boring. (laughs) And I let my kids pick out the fabrics so that instead of the same old soccer ball, football, baseball truck, my little boy had pants with penguins and frogs and feathers and fish. and, And unless you look carefully... You might not see the places where I've patched and repaired all the rips and three-corner tears where one of us has snagged on a fence or caught on a nail. A woman I spoke with explained that when she's sewing a quilt, it might mean assembling 35 blocks of pieced fabrics. She cuts and stitches and presses the same thing 35 times. And it becomes a meditative time. And as her hands work, her mind travels out into its quiet, fascinating places. If it will be a gift, she might be thinking of the people who will receive the quilt. It's impossible to put a prayer into every stitch. And... As Phil noted, sometimes an oath might happen. But she takes care to choose the fabrics that will have significance and bring a smile to that person who snuggles under that quilt at night. A man who quilts simply said, It's my safe place. His quilts are dazzlingly intricate. Each one is made up of thousands of tiny pieces of bright cloth. He listens to audiobooks while he works. He's listened to Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and all those other great writers whose books we mean to get around to reading. If only we had the time. And while he listens, his hands cut and piece and pin and sew artwork of kaleidoscopic brilliance. This world would be a calmer place if all of us had such safe places for our creativity. Now, choosing fabric takes practice, and it requires a sort of Buddhist lack of attachment, offset by a hoarder's mania. Choosing the color is only part of it. You also have to feel the fabric to determine the quality and the drape and any stretch or texture to it. And when we're searching for fabric, we move through the store shopping with our hands. And we just touch and rub and tug and even just wave it to see how it will move. And it's getting harder to find quality fabrics, so there's a certain amount of scowling while I'm shopping. And the goddess will just laugh at you if you think that you simply must have a certain fabric, because then you will not find it. Or you will find the perfect fabric, but not the perfect pattern, or vice versa. And we learn to buy up the fabric when we find it, and then wait for the pattern to show up, or vice versa. And this is how come fabric stashes grow so large. I was so lucky. I learned to sew from my mom. She taught me the correct 4-H way. And from my stepmom, who taught me all the ways to adapt the pattern and be creative and have fun. 
my mother's fabulous dresses. She sewed with Indonesian batiks, and they fit her beautifully because she sized them to her petite frame. Eventually, my stepmother opened up her own business, doing everything from those mundane, simple alterations, taken up, letting out, putting in, and all the way to designing and sewing beautiful wedding dresses. She sewed my wedding dress and my sister's and our cousin's. Both of these women drew upon a deep patience to teach me. Well, I don't have the time to sew as much as I'd like. When I spread out the fabric and pick up my shears, I have them both and all of my grandmothers with me. Another woman I know is like many of us, forced to learn sewing in school. Girls learned sewing, boys took wood shop. It was the natural order of things. But she resisted sewing, and she hated it for the sexist holdover that it was. And she made her damn skirt moaning and groaning the whole time, and then she was done with it. But then, as an adult, one day she picked up a book on quilting and was stunned. It was the most beautiful thing she'd seen. The book pulled her in, and in time, she taught herself everything about quilting from the ground up. She had how to use a sewing machine, how to buy a sewing machine. She found delight in all the odd notions and doodads that someone somewhere, probably a woman, probably in a snit, someone had invented to solve a specific sewing problem. Did you know there really is such a thing as a bodkin it's very useful for turning skinny things inside out. Okay, a fat safety pin works pretty well, too. As my friend learned to make quilts, she developed a respect for the ingenuity and engineering that had paved the way for her. And she loves choosing the colors. And that moment when she drops in a little piece of lavender or orange, and suddenly the whole thing turns spectacular. And when she sews a quilt, she is very selective of who receives them. Each one is more than a blanket. It's a gift of her time. Now, I admit, sewing these days is anachronistic. It takes patience to learn how to sew and practice to learn how to sew something well enough to make something you'd want to wear out in public. Why bother? <laughs> Someone else can do it, cheaper and faster and better, and they're probably happy to have the work. I mean, it's not like there's slavery anymore, right? Yeah. These people are skilled laborers who get paid, right? Well, I don't want to depress you with details, but if you pay $5 for a T-shirt you can be pretty sure that the person who sewed it did not even make 50 cents for their work. And even if you pay $50 for a shirt, you still can't be sure that the person in Vietnam or the North Marianas or Nicaragua was paid a fair wage. If you are vigilant, you can research your clothing choices, but there's not a lot of fair trade garments out there, unless you sew your own. 
when I wear something that I've sewn, I know that the only person who was unfairly compensated or exploited was me. <laughs> so what else can you do? How can you stand in opposition to a global economy that treats workers and their products as disposable commodities? It's unrealistic for all of us to learn to sew clothing, really. But here's a suggestion. Treat every piece of clothing you already own as if it were handmade, especially for you. It might not have been hand-stitched, but hands did guide the fabric through the cutting and the stitching and the pressing. When you put on your shirt, consider the hands that carefully spaced those buttons and made sure they were secure. Think of the hands that folded it and wrapped it for you. Wear it well. Wear it to bits. If a button falls off, catch it up quick and sew it back on. And when it is worn beyond repair, snip off those buttons and save them. They might come in handy. And use the fabric as a rag to wipe your windows clean. Do you have a garment that you love but that doesn't quite fit right? Take it to a local seamstress for alterations and repairs so that it fits you as you are now, not when you lose or gain or have an interview. Right now. And wear it. And when you pay that person, you'll keep a few dollars in our local economy. But here's my last recommendation. If you are so lucky that someone gives you something they sewed, please, don't say, as I've heard, oh, it's so pretty, I'll save it for sometime special, and then never use it. That's missing the point. Put it on. Spread it out. Let the baby spit up on it. Hang it up where you'll grab for it when you're in a rush. Wrap yourself up in it. And then twirl around slowly and see if the love swirls about you. And our benediction today is words from Ian Huntington Bear. You are in the story of the world. You are the world coming to know itself. May you trust that all you will ever say or do belongs in the story of the world. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.